The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Uh, if you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do open with me to the book of Hebrews. Um, so if you don't have a paper Bible, just grab it, grab your phone. Um, I'm sure you have an app for it. Or if you don't have an app, you can just go online and pull down a copy of Hebrews. We're only going to be looking at two verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, we'll do that in just a moment. First, I want to say the year was 490 B.C. The Persian army was trying to invade Greece. And the battle was being fought on the plains of Marathon, which is the name of an ancient Greek city about 25 miles from Athens. And so after the Greeks had won the victory, a messenger named Pheidippides, uh, say that ten times real fast, Pheidippides, he ran as fast as he could from the city of Marathon to the city of Athens. He delivered the message that the Greeks had repelled the invading Persian army and then Promptly, Pheidippides collapsed from exhaustion and died on the spot. Now, what should we do for somebody like this? Well, about 125 years ago, the first mod- at the first modern Olympic Games, uh, to commemorate his dramatic run, the first Olympic marathon foot race took place in 1896 um, at the Olympics that were held in Athens. And since that time, marathon running has actually uh, grown remarkably in popularity. Um, so when we're not in the midst of a, of, of a pandemic as we are now, there, there are over a thousand marathons, individual marathons run in the United States alone, okay, every year. Um, and according to the History Channel that I was doing some research on, in 1976, um, 25,000 people estimated finished running a marathon in 1976, which is no small number, right? Uh, but in the year 2013, so less than a decade ago, the number of finishers had grown over 20 times. So 541,000 people in the United States had finished a marathon. Pretty significant numbers there, right? Now, for those of you not familiar with marathoning, so it takes a world-class runner uh, just a bit over two hours um, to run a marathon. The average runner... Um, like me, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not even in the two-hour range, not even in the three-hour range. Um, so average runners between three and a half, say, to six hours to complete a marathon. And here, here's my point. Whether you're a world-class runner or whether you're a weekend runner like myself, if you run a marathon, you're going to be on your feet for a while. You just know that when you toe the line. You're going to be on your feet for a while. So the, the marathon is a battle of endurance, not speed. But you might be wondering... I thought we're here to talk about Easter, right? What, what, what are you starting off with a marathon analogy? What are, you, what are you doing here? What does it have to do with Easter? Here's my point uh, this morning. Um, is the Christian life is more like a marathon than it is a sprint. We're going to see that from our text today, and we're going to see that trusting in the resurrection is a marathon experience, not a sprint experience. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 12, say amen. 
All right. We're going to read again just verses 1 and 2. You follow along as I read those verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray now, Father, that in the reading and hearing of Your Word, that Your Spirit would accompany now the proclamation of Your Word, and that You would use this time to mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. Lord, we thank You for Your work that You have done among us. We thank You for the work that You are doing among us. And we give you praise for the work that you will continue to do among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the Christian life is more like a marathon, not a sprint. The Christian life is, is about endurance or perseverance. You know, anyone can be a flash in the pan for a moment. Anybody can do something excellent. Boom. But it takes endurance to truly live out the Christian life. And according to our text today, in order to run that marathon of a Christian life, we need to remember three things. We need to remember the example of others. We need to remember the actions of Jesus, or the action of Jesus, and we need to remember the position of Jesus. So the example of others, the action of Jesus, and the position of Jesus. So let's first, let's remember the example of others. The author of Hebrews begins chapter 12 by writing, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, we know just from basic reading that we know that the word therefore, it's a connecting word. It's used to connect what's, what's about to come with what has just come. And so the therefore here is connecting chapters 11 and 12. And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with this book, then you know about chapter 11. Chapter 11 is sometimes called or referred to as the Hall of Faith. No fewer than 19 times in chapter 11 is the phrase, by faith, used. And it's almost always used with somebody's name after it. So for example, by faith Abel did this, or by faith Abraham did that, by faith Sarah, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses, by faith faith Rahab, etc., etc., all through the book. No fewer than 16 individual names are recognized for their faith. And then not only individual names, but then entire groups of people like prophets who are, who are not named individually recognized for their faith. Here's my point. When the author of Hebrews starts off by telling the readers that they are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, he has these individuals, these individuals from chapter 11, those are the ones he has primarily in mind. He wants his readers to read the Scriptures and to read the accounts of those men and women. He wants us to read and learn something from their lives. We have this great cloud of witnesses. But you might say, well, Pastor, those people lived thousands of years ago. 
And yes, they did, but we still have that great cloud of witnesses. But I also want to argue that the church is never without witnesses. Many of you were here during our 9 o'clock hour, and if you weren't, you missed a treat. It's, we got it recorded. You can go back to our YouTube page and watch it later. But here's my point. Not only do we have this great cloud of witnesses from chapter 11 and the other chapters in the Scripture, not only do we have that cloud of witnesses, but we have men and women like those who were giving testimony here earlier today. That cloud of witnesses who are reminding us and showing us what it means to walk with Christ. They reminded us how their faith sustains them, how it encourages them in their walk. And so since we have this great cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews tells us then in verse 1 that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. The, the weight that he's talking about there is likely this idea of sinful weight. These, these sins that we carry along. These sins that we can't seem to shed. That we, that we keep giving in to these things. That keep us from walking in obedience with the Lord. And the author of Hebrews says, says, lay those things aside. Those sinful weights, they hinder our ability to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me illustrate. Imagine I challenge you to a 100-meter sprint, okay? So right after the service is over, I said, we're going to do a 100-meter 100 100 sprint. Now, just for the record, I'm not fast. I am probably one of the slowest people in this room as far as like on a short distance. I'm, I'm not a fast runner at all. But here's the catch. But before we actually get ready to go, you have to put on a backpack that weighs 1,000 pounds, I don't have to put on a backpack, okay? And so I'm going to race you while you're wearing a 1,000-pound backpack. And I'm just wearing running clothes. I, matter of fact, I'll, I'll do you this. I'll even run you in my church clothes, okay? But you have to put on the 1,000 pounds. Now, again, I'm not fast, but I could beat Usain Bolt if Bolt were wearing a 1,000-pound backpack on his back. I'm going to win that challenge every day of the week because I'm free from that burden of weight. Are you with me? Now, earlier, though, I said the Christian life is more like a marathon. It's not a sprint. So imagine this time I challenge you to a race. I say, but this time we're not running. We're not running a sprint. We're running a marathon, 26.2 miles. And so since we're running 26.2 miles, you don't have to put on a thousand pound backpack. You only have to carry one extra pound with you. You think one extra pound, that's, that's not a big deal, right? Well, did you know that the combined weight of one extra pound over the course of a marathon, you're, you're so running, you're hitting your feet, and I'm a runner, okay? I, I, I know that you, you hit your feet about 180 times per minute when you're, when you're running. That one pound over the course of those 26.2 miles is going to total over 40,000 pounds. 40,000 pounds by the end of the marathon. One pound equals 40,000 pounds. So if you're, let's say you're carrying an extra 10 pounds right now with you that you don't want to have. 10 pounds, that means you're 200 tons over the course of a marathon. Here's my point again. Sometimes we, we look at sins in our life. We say, yeah, that's just a, it's just a little sin. That's just a kind of a one-pound sin. That's, it's not a, that's not a big deal. If I, I don't really need to shed this in order to run with endurance. Well, 
if the Christian life is like a marathon, then over the course of the marathon that is your Christian life, it will, that one little sin, it will cost you dearly. And so we have these witnesses. These witnesses who are before us, these witnesses who are surrounding us, those here in the Scripture, as well as those that are sitting on either side of you right now. We have these witnesses. They are here for our benefit. These witnesses of Christians all around us, they're living a life right now and their life is to us a treasure trove where we can learn from them so that we can learn how to run with endurance. And so let's not forget those faithful Christians who lived you know, 20 centuries ago. Let's not forget them. But let's not, let's not also forget those who are sitting around us. And by the way, you know, there's a large time between the ones that lived 20 centuries ago who were in the Scriptures and right now. It's one of the reasons I love, just for, the, for example, I love reading Christian biographies from men and women who live somewhere in that in-between time. They're not in Scripture because they, were, they weren't alive then, but nor are they alive now. And so you read these Christian testimonies and what an encouragement that is to our faith. You see, from the example of others, we learn how to run this marathon that is the Christian life. That's the first thing I want us to notice. Second thing is I want us to look, turn our attention to the action of Jesus. The action of Jesus. Singular here, the action. In verse 2, we're, we're told not only, again, this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, but specifically, the author says, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is, he's the founder, or as some of your translations might have it there, he's the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. In other words, without Jesus, we wouldn't have a Christian faith. Without Jesus, we wouldn't be gathered here today. Without an empty tomb, we wouldn't be gathered here today. But what is it about Jesus that defines the faith? What's that one something special that the author of Hebrews is wanting us to look at here? Well, in verse 2, notice with me in verse 2, he says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. This, of course, this is a refer reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. And there are three things I want you to notice about that phrase. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and i'm going to work those in backwards order the author tells us that jesus the last thing he, for the joy set before him he endured the cross despising the shame that jesus despised the shame of crucifixion and listen to me with without question crucifixion was a shameful way to die it was so shameful, in fact, that it was against the law, except in the most extreme and rare circumstances, for a Roman citizen even to be crucified. A Roman citizen, like, all you had to do is pull out your card and say, oh, I'm a Roman citizen, you're not doing that to me. Right? They couldn't be crucified. Now, when we look at most artist renditions of the crucifixion, we normally see Jesus there wearing this small loincloth, and that's all he has on. In reality, he probably didn't even have that on. Okay, In reality, he didn't even have that. He was nailed to a cross, hanging there naked for the entire world to see. 
And yes, it was a painful way to die, but more importantly, it was a shameful way to die. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul uh, paraphrases the book of Deuteronomy. He says this, he said, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then quoting that passage, Paul makes the point that Jesus took our curse. He He was despised. He took our curse. A shameful way to die. But Jesus despised that shame. Second, the author of Hebrews tells us here that Jesus endured the cross. You know, crucifixion wasn't wasn't a quick death. It, it wasn't a beheading by guillotine. It wasn't standing in, in a firing in, before a firing squad. It wasn't an electric chair or lethal injection. It wasn't anything like that. Death by crucifixion could sometimes take days. Days of hanging there on the cross. But even if it didn't take days, it was guaranteed to take hours of hanging there on the cross because it wasn't really the nails um, or the however it was that they put you to the cross. It, that wasn't what killed you. It was the stretching of the body and the chest cavity collapsing that ultimately you suffocated to death on the cross. There's this, mar- there's this phenomenon in marathon running. It's called hitting the wall. Again, it takes, imagine it takes several hours to run a marathon. So it's not uncommon for a marathoner to get to a point where you just, your, your legs, they feel like rubber. Like, I can't, I can't, take, another, I can't take another step. Um, sometimes that might happen. You might only have two or three miles to go. Maybe you have six or seven miles to go. But you get to this point where you don't think you can take another step. You hit the wall. And the only way for a marathoner then to make it to the finish point, finish line, is to endure the pain of putting one foot in front of other, in front of the other, in front of the other. That's the only way to get through the wall, is to endure the pain. Well, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's enduring. But you might say, well, what is he enduring? on? Is it just the pain that he's enduring? And it was much more than just the pain. I have a cross stitch that hangs in my office right above the, my computer monitor. My sister made it for me. It's framed. It's beautiful. Um, it's a cross stitch of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we, we know that there was a point in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest, when, when the whole thing, if you will, seemed too much for Jesus. It, it was so bad for him that he sweat drops of blood, the Scripture tells us. And so even then, even before he was actually on the cross, he was already enduring the idea of the cross. He knew the cross was coming. He was enduring that. But there's one other aspect of that endurance that I want to propose for us. When Jesus hung on that cross dying, the Scripture tells us that darkness fell on the entire land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That is from noon till three o'clock. So the height, the height of daytime. Why did it get dark right in the middle of the day? What's happening there? Well, it got dark because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Jesus was bearing the weight at that moment, all the sin of the world, past sin, present sin, future sin, All of the sin of the world was put on Jesus at 
that moment. And because sin was put on his shoulders, the darkness of sin covered the land. Now try to imagine that for just a second. Try to imagine what it was like for the perfect, sinless Son of God not to bear the weight of one sin, but to bear the total weight of all sin on Himself. Beloved, that took endurance. That took endurance. Finally, the author of Hebrews tells us here that Jesus did it for the joy that was set before Him. <laughs> I don't know, if so. if you've been paying attention to anything I've said so far, you're thinking, what kind of... <laughs> What joy have you mentioned so far? I mean, despising the shame, enduring the cross, none of that sounds like joy to me. You know, hanging there naked for the whole world to see. That, none of that sounds enjoyable. And so where does the author of Hebrews get off telling us that Jesus was doing this for the joy that was set before Him? Where was this joy? Well, beloved... Listen to me, this is super important. You and I are that joy. Saving us was the joy that was set before Him. As He prepared to hang on the cross, as He hung on that cross, He was thinking about us. It was that joy that propelled Him, that was set before Him. Think about a mother who's going through labor pains. And I know immediately, so you're a man, you don't know anything about this. You're right. I'm a man, I don't know anything. Other than I was in the room four times when it happened, but still, I don't have any personal experience with that. I understand that. But I'm going to just take an edge. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to take an educated guess that no woman enjoys labor pains, right? That's not something that women enjoy doing. But I'm, I also think this is a fair statement. I think most women would say for the joy that's set before them, they will endure those labor pains. See, most women will recognize that on the other side of those labor pains is going to be a baby. And so they will endure the pain for the sake of the baby, for the joy of the baby. Well, that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's willing to endure the pain of the cross for the joy of seeing you and I, born again. He was willing to endure that pain. He was willing to take on the sin of the world for the joy of bringing us once again into a right relationship with the Father. That was the joy that was set before Jesus. And so let's remember the action of Jesus. Let's remember that when Jesus went to the cross to bear our penalty, He did so that we might have everlasting life. Point number three. Baptism people, if you need to head out, this is a good time to do it. I want us to see the position of Jesus. The position of Jesus. Here in verse 2, we've gone again from Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame, to notice this, now He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But something seems to be missing here, right? I mean, you go right from enduring the cross to seated at the right hand. Crucifixion normally is in death. 
right? It, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us anything about death. But the gospel accounts make it crystal clear for us that Jesus, He did. He died on that cross. There's no doubt about that. But then if we say He died, then something else is missing, right? I mean, if He's gone from being dead, now He's seated. This, this isn't weekend at Bernie's, right? So dead people aren't seated next to somebody. This is, Jesus has gone from being dead to being seated. And so what's missing, or rather I might say what has been assumed in this passage is the author is writing here clearly to an audience who would have been familiar with the death of Jesus, but they also would have been familiar with the resurrection as well. And so he's writing this with a resurrection in mind. Jesus isn't seated unless he's first been raised. And so he's raised. And now he's seated at the throne of God. And so this resurrection, it's a glorious truth for all of us to behold. But let me add this as well for us. I want to say that whether you're a Christian or not this morning, I promise you that you want the resurrection to be true. You really, you really do. You know, as I was thinking about this week, my mind raced, raced to a movie, um, A Few Good Men, with Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. You guys from I see some nodding heads. You know this movie. That there's that cla- climactic. Uh, courtroom scene Nicholson's character says to, t- to Tom Cruise's character he says he says you don't or, or he said he's <laughs> I mean, I'm not getting Nicholson character here uh, he says you don't want the truth because deep down in places that you don't talk about at parties you want me on that wall you need me on that wall and as I think about that friends again whether you're a Christian today or not we want the the resurrection to be true and we need the resurrection to be true now think about the turmoil that's happened just this past 12 months a global pandemic a financial crisis a bitter and divisive presidential election an attempted insurrection at the capitol race relations gone amok i could go on right all of these things in the last 12 months but please listen to me if jesus really did rise from the dead we've got nothing to worry about Those things are all small potatoes. In the introduction to his new book, uh, Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. Um, I haven't finished reading it. I'm just reading it right now. So that's why I'm quoting from the introduction. (laughs) Um, but But he says this. He says, quote, The resurrection is not a stupendous magic trick, but an invasion. And then he goes on and he says this on the very next page. He says, if Jesus was raised from the dead, it changes everything. How we conduct relationships, our attitude toward wealth and power, how we work in our vocations, our understanding and practice of sexuality, race relations, and justice. And so friends, listen, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and I believe that to be an incontrovertible fact, Okay, when I say if he raised, I don't want to leave somebody like, oh, the pastor's wondering if he. No, I mean he did. But if that indeed happened, which I believe did happen, then all of our problems are small potatoes. We don't have any big problems if Jesus really raised or was, was really raised from the dead. If Jesus was victorious over death itself, then we are golden. Because after his resurrection. The author of Hebrews tells us he went and he was seated by the right hand of the throne of God. That's his position. That's where he's at right now. 
He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I wonder if you ever thought, given any consideration, what does that mean that he's seated at the right hand? What does that right hand mean? Thomas Schreiner recently written a commentary on Hebrews. And he makes these three points about being seated at the right hand, what that means. First, the right hand represents power. It represents power. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So Jesus, because he's been resurrected, because he's at the right hand of God, is now in a position of power. And because Jesus is in a position of power, we know that we have victory over our enemies. Because Jesus is all-powerful. Second, the right hand means protection. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And so here in a world full of pandemics and riots in the street, who doesn't want protection, right? But the protection we get from Jesus is far greater than the protection from any temporary inconveniences of this life. Jesus protects us in this life as well as in the life to come. And third, the right hand means triumph. Triumph. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes... Sometimes it can be hard to know whether we're on the winning side, if you will. You know, all these cultural warriors, they're out there clamoring. They want us to be on, you know, they say to us, you've got to be on the right side of history, right? Well, let's be content this morning that our Savior is at the right side of the one who makes history. And as long as we're with Him, we're on the right side of history. So depending on how well your training progresses, depending on how well your diet and age your body, again, somewhere usually around the 20-mile mark, marathoners hit that dreaded wall. So you've been a Christian now for any length of time. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm just hitting that wall. This last year, I feel like, or just maybe it's nothing to do with this last year. You just feel like I'm hitting that wall. Maybe you're only three miles into the race. You realize, wow, I just started this right here. So you're a brand new baby Christian. And you're, you're three miles into the race and you're thinking, that means I, I'm not, you know, I still got 23 miles more to go. For some of you, maybe you're even decided whether you should tow the line. Is, is this a race that I want to run? Do, do I want to be a part of this Christian life? And so wherever you might be on the journey, whether you're nearing the finish line, whether you've just started, whether you're asking yourself, should I start this race? Let me encourage you to remember the example of others, to remember the action of Jesus, and to remember the position of Jesus as you run that race. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that our time is not done yet. We, we, speaking of testimony, speaking of a great cloud of witnesses, we have a baptism now to look forward to. 
as we have a sister in Christ who loves Jesus. And because she loves Jesus, she wants to give testimony, public testimony, to her faith in Christ. And so we pray now that you would use this time to continue to make us more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.